Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, uh, my podcast in which we, we talk about things, I guess, that matter to me anyway, spiritual matters often, but also life itself through a spiritual lens. Um, excited to say I've got a, a book out these days called uh, I Thought He Was Dead, and it's a spiritual memoir. Um, you can get it. I, I'm, I'm new to the world of books, so it, apparently it's not that easy to get your book into a warehouse and then into somebody's hands, but Indigo seems to be doing okay with it. Uh, Amazon's having a bit of a problem with it from the last time I checked, but you know, do it that way, or you can go to my publisher, which is at info at Woolsack and Win. Woolsack is W-O-L-S-A-K and Win, W-Y-N-N. So info at Woolsack and Wind, and my publisher would be glad to ship you a, a copy of the book. Uh, it's fun. I've never actually written a book before. But my guest today seems to never stop writing books. How many books, Mr. Corrin? Uh, oh, I can't call you Mr. anymore, can I? You can I call to... me whatever you want, actually. Well, <laughs> but what, what, what is your official? Are you a uh, uh, reverend? Well... I'm a priest in the, the Anglican Church, but we've, we've known each other a long time. Michael is absolutely fine. I've been called much worse. I know, but I like the honorific. I like the, you've earned it. Well, you can call me reverend if you want. I will. Uh, I have friends, close friends who are rabbis, and I always call them rabbi, and I always say hello, rabbi. Uh, when I worked in politics, I used to, if someone was a minister, I said hello, minister, even if I knew them well. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, uh, this is... It's not nothing, you know, to to earn those titles. And uh, I think it's worth honor at that point. Um, uh, how, how many books have I written? I, yeah. Well, um, if you said how many good books, the number would be much lower. <laughs> but, um, um, I, think it's, I think it's about 17. Uh, but some of those have been compilations of, of columns. Right. So, you know, original books, probably about a, a 12 or 13. And a number of them have been literary biographies. That's how I started off. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of H.G. Wells, Arthur Conan Doyle, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, and uh, a, a few about faith too. But this new book, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not just saying this. Um, this I am very proud of, of, of this book. And this is the, if someone said to me, you know, what's the book? If, if, if there's one book you could say, you know, does, does this one get me through? Mm. It will be this. The Rebel Christ. Hmm. I, I've seen you talk about it in one way or another on social media for quite a while to try to get through to people um, what Christ means to you and what you believe Christ, uh, uh, what Jesus was. Mm. Um, give, before we get into it, uh, I've spoken to different uh, Christian friends about this Jesus Christ. Um, is there a difference for you between talking about Jesus and talking about Christ? No, I, I, I think that's contrived, actually. Uh, Christ is just a Greek word for Messiah. Uh, it, it means we're, we're saying that he was the son of God. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the son of God. Uh, Jesus um, is uh, a Latin version of, of Yeshua, of, of the Hebrew name of this man who was certainly Jewish, who was born 2,000 years ago. So, no, I, I think that could be a little bit dangerous because it's, it's rather like people, I get a bit concerned when people say, well, I, I, don't, I don't look at the Old Testament. You've got to separate the two. God forbid, 
first of all, there's a danger of anti-Semitism creeping in there, but also it's a misunderstanding. It's the same God. And I mean, I believe as a Christian that the Gospels New Testament is the completion of the Hebrew scriptures. Jewish people wouldn't, of course. Um, but the Bible, for me, is one text. And Jesus Christ, no, it might be convenient. Um, I mean, I'll be quite candid with you. The reason I didn't call it the rebel Jesus was because there's a wonderful song by Jackson Brown called The Rebel Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, and so we just decided on the rebel. And also there's a slight sort of paradox there, almost a, you might say an oxymoron because, you know, rebel, mm. Christ. So um, I, I think it works well together, but I, I, I don't think the, those two words signify anything unless someone really is trying to make them do so. Well, I did, uh, a friend of mine uh, from the United Church, uh, her take on it was that Jesus is the man and Christ is the consciousness. Yeah, I wouldn't You, you don't buy that one, eh? Well, no, I don't think it's a sort of consciousness. I mean, I, I, you know, like it's a cosmic consciousness, Christ. It's, it's beyond the idea of a, a man who is divine. It is about... Yes, but it's a term given to him. I mean, obviously not at the time. I mean, that wasn't his surname. <laughs> but, <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, it, I'm an Orthodox Christian, and uh, what I, I mean, the, the book says lots of things, but um, it's not Jesus was this really great guy who preached all sorts of wonderful life-changing, world-transforming values and virtues, and that there's more than that. I believe he was the son of God. Uh, there are other, uh, I mean, I, actually, his parables are unique. I mean, other, there are other figures who use parables. Um, but not the way he did. A lot of what he said is unique, not all of it. Other people have said some of it before. But I wouldn't revere, wouldn't worship, wouldn't give my life to him just for what he said, combined with what he preached and what he said and what he did. I believe he is the Messiah. So Jesus Christ, it, it, I have no discomfort with that at all. And I would urge people in the Christian world who do have a lack of comfort with that, with all due respect, to question why. Is it about them or is it about Christ? What do you mean? Well, some people in, in, in Christendom are a little embarrassed, I think. Uh, they want to avoid using the terminology. The deeper my faith has come, the deeper my belief in, in the creed, in the, in, in, in the truth of, of, of Jesus, uh, the more progressive and radical I've become. I mean, I, it, it changed me. I mean, People, some people said, well, he must have lost his faith. That's why he's, he's such a terrible lefty. Uh, no, if I do pursue and advocate progressive ideas more than ever, it's because my faith has deepened. And I believe, and that's really what the book is saying. Look, th this, is, this is, I suppose, my working premise. Um, I believe in a great leap of solidarity and fraternity. God became man. What if God was one of us? <laughs> God became man to show love and empathy and solidarity with humanity and would die a humiliating death on a cross and be tortured and abused and despised and rejected. He didn't choose that act of solidarity to come in the form of, of a monarch or an aristocrat or an arms dealer or, or a billionaire, but in a first century Jewish son of a carpenter or skilled, skilled craftsman, the Greek is a bit vague, living in an occupied land hanging out with the rejected, the poor, the marginalized, the despised, reserving his harshest words for the wealthy, the legalistic, the powerful, and the rigid. All of that indicates that Jesus, the son of God, 
he's making a statement, this is who I am and this is what the world should be. And then in his preaching and teaching, it is revolutionary. It's a permanent revolution of love and it is about redistribution and it is about human equality. And that we live in a world today that I was born in London, England. I came to live in, married a Canadian that live in Toronto, Canada. Imagine just by accident of birth, I was born in Sierra Leone or I don't know, Uganda or most of the world, mm. most of the world, my life would have been much, much more difficult. COVID could easily have killed me. Flu could have killed me. I wouldn't have had the food that I needed. I wouldn't have had. So it cannot be a just world where human equality demanded by Jesus, the son of God, is, is, a, is a joke. We have nothing even approaching it. That's why I use the word rebel, the rebel Christ. Everything he, he was about was a, a different world, a new Jerusalem. That doesn't mean that I'm, I belong to a, polit a political party. I don't. It doesn't mean that I, I reject people who, who are conservative, because I certainly don't. But I do think we, we, have to, we have to be real about what the teachings of Jesus really mean. And the distortion, this is what so pains me, the distortion of them by the Christian right by people who claim that, that Jesus believes in their obsessive opposition to abortion, their, their dislike, their hatred often of, of gay people, uh, their support for the military and, and, and for unbridled capitalism, for, for rigid borders and, and, and throwing refugees out. That is complete anathema to the, the Christian narrative. And that's, I mean, the reason I wrote the book is because actually Dundon publisher, they came to me and said, I wasn't going to write a book. I was you know, a lot of work in, in working towards the priesthood. And, and they said, would you give us a 50,000 words of manifesto outlining? So I thought, well, this is an offer I can't refuse. <laughs> mm, yeah. But that's what, I'm, that's what I'm trying to do in, in the book. I'm, I'm not, it's, it's not a work of evangelism. Uh, that's a different book. Uh, and I don't really do that sort of thing. If people uh, come to me and they want to learn about Christianity, of course, I'd love them to be Christian, but that's not what I'm about. It's presenting the authentic Jesus, which has been very distorted and perverted uh, by many North American Christians in particular. And that's fairly recent. Uh, I trace it back to the 1960s with the evangelical, evangelical right in the US reacting to a new progressive society, which they were frightened of. And then augmented by the Catholic right and a lot of Catholicism, uh, in the early 70s when abortion was uh, legalized. And those groups have come together. So something I find interesting about um, what happens with religion um, is that it often, be, it's weaponized quite often in, in such strange ways. Um, and then there's the whole battle about um, context and the whole battle around uh, exclusivity, exceptionalism. You know, uh, I, I sometimes work, do workshops uh, with Jewish groups. And one of the things I start with is um, we talk about what is God to everybody because everybody has a different idea about what yeah. God is. And, you know, I want to respect that and bring it into the circle. But I also, I also like to drop this little piece in the middle that says, well, here's an idea. God is not Jewish. We are Jewish. We are making a choice to think about bigger issues through that. But there's no such thing as God is Jewish or God is Christian. Mm -hmm. 
and and also as a as a as a Jew, I find you know, you know my my friend's uh, grandmother was uh, about to go to bed in the, in their house and you know go to her room. She turns and they've been talking about something about, and Jesus had come up and she went, you know, Jesus, he was a nice man, but but the son of God, and then just goes into her room. So everybody has a different thing going on. Um, and I think a lot of it is rooted in that G word. It, it, what does the G word mean to people? Um, I was talking to a Reconstructionist rabbi uh, last weekend, and he said, look, uh, Mordecai Kaplan, who started that movement, his whole view of things was that God is the life energy of the universe mm. and not in a direct relationship to a human being when there are a trillion billion stars in that universe, that we are just to make ourselves available to that constant creative force of life that moves through this universe. So does how we see the idea of God change what we do with it once we get down to the human action of life? Yes, but I mean, I've got to say that's not really what the book is about. I'm, I'm not talking about No, that. I know, but I'm saying it's a premise that I, I for me, it's like if it, I don't just move past this idea into mm. God and Jesus and God became, you know, you know, had a relationship with Jesus as the son of God. Well, then what's the God word mean? So what does it mean to you? Well, I, I reject, I mean, I've read enough uh, Spinoza when I was at university to, uh, there are different ideas of what God is and there are caricatures of what God is. And, most of this doesn't matter to me. I couldn't actually care less about it because if we embrace the idea that God is love, then everything we do that is loving and kind and selfless is a reflection of God's desire and God's aspiration for us. And I have people who write to me just yesterday, actually, a very moving letter that... Um, she was very grateful to me because I, I, I'd spoken about my children and none of them were, were Christian and uh, that I would certainly spend eternity with them. My parents weren't Christian and, and you know, she'd been raised in a, in a very harsh, I think, quite puritanical family where if you weren't even a, probably a particular type of Christian, you were going to burn for eternity. And that, that's an ugly caricature. That's not God. That's a Hollywood movie. And God cannot be defined as such. There have been many attempts to do it. Um, but I, I do believe that there is a, a love behind creation. I'm not talking about literal six-day creation. That's a joke. That's laughable. It's not even what the Bible says. Uh, but I do believe there is a purpose behind us and behind creation, and it's based in love. And that if we reflect that love, whatever our faith, I think we are, we are close to God. And I don't believe God rejects anyone who is loving. Um, I don't like using, I mean, life force. And it's, it, I'm sorry, it's far too Darth Vader for me. Um, <laughs> but I, there, there are catechisms that will define God for you. There's Aquinas who will define God for you. There's C.S. Lewis who will define God for you. Um, I, I seldom discuss that. I can tell you as a priest, most of what I do, and that there were some very beautiful things celebrating the Eucharist and so on, and, and praying with people, but a, a lot of what I do is sitting with people, listening to their pain and suffering. And it is beyond calculation. You know, things like I can't say that they're too personal, but 
the degree of pain out there. And when, when people say, you know, some, some brilliant, courageous person on Twitter, you know, abolish the churches, do this, do that. And I, I really don't care. But if you only knew what life was like it, it, and the good that is done within Christian circles, and when you listen to someone who may have lost a child, a partner, is on their own. Um, you don't talk about profound definitions of God. You talk about love and you talk about understanding and reassurance. And, and that's how I leave it. Mm. Okay. I just, for me, I like to lay the foundations because everybody comes at it from their angle, which now brings us to the book because there was a sense for me in the book of, of, that one could devolve, I don't think you do in this book, but one could devolve into just a legalistic argument for or against a particular line of scripture, a particular context of things. Um, how did you manage to avoid this, he said, he said thing going on um, and, and find a different path in the book? Well, that's very kind of you. Um, and the book, to a degree, is reactive, and there's no point in, in denying that, because there is a certain status quo, uh, a view that Christianity is conservative. And not everyone has that, and I, I prefer to think of it as organized kindness. But uh, generally, when we hear about the church, and when I use church, I mean in general, uh, it's abuse scandals, terrible ones. It's residential schools. Um, it's anti-vaccine demonstrations, um, it's protests outside abortion clinics. This is not positive. And, you know, the, uh, the loudest noise is often made in the shallowest end of the swimming pool. And these people certainly know how to splash. And, and uh, I'm part of media, so I understand how journalism works. I don't expect uh, reports on, oh, another really a, a good, good job done by lovely people in church. That might happen at Christmas. You know, people don't come to my particular church and, and, and report on the fact that we are giving clothes and food to literally thousands of people, but nor do I really expect that. So there's a view though of Christianity that is very negative and it can be incredibly dangerous. I've met a lot of people in the gay community over the years whose lives have been shattered, attempted suicide, self-harm because they've been raised in Christian homes, often with loving parents, but parents who say, you know, this is, for, because we want you to, to see God and, and we, we, we don't want you to go to hell. You've got to change in conversion therapy and all this other, and terribly harmful. Uh, abortion, women who simply cannot afford to have another child and that the man has buggered off and, and being told that, that if, 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 unless they go through with that pregnancy, they're damned and murderers. And you have to counter this in the name of God. You have to counter this. And so what I've, what I tried to do in the book after setting a certain framework is to say, well, what does scripture actually say about this? Um, Jesus and the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. On the and there's a whole chapter on abortion. I mean, I'm, very, I'm quite selective, I don't cover every issue, but on, on abortion, because that's a, that's a defining issue now for millions of Christians. You, you can be the most wonderful person, but if you are not absolutely opposed to abortion, you're damned. Mm. And I go through, I mean, it, this is not, the Abrahamic faiths do not embrace this idea that life begins at conception. It, 
Jewish, Muslim, Christian teachings, life begins with the first breath. And, and people are quite surprised when they hear that about Islam. And abortion may not be common in Islamic culture, but the teaching is very different from the right, right-wing Christian teaching. And in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, there is one point when abortion is, is suggested, even, even demanded. But I don't believe that we use an ancient text as a guide to daily living. But it is not something that's a major issue. Jesus does not talk about it. And we can, as reasonable people, and you'd hope that if you have a, a faith that makes you more loving, you will be reasonable. You can say, well, you know, abortion rates, it might be a good thing if they did decline. And I certainly have a certain visceral response to abortion based on, on disability or gender. But as I say in the book, if we do provide socialized medicine, we do here, but not in the States, publicly funded daycare, readily available contraception, good modern sex ed in schools, trying to eradicate poverty, um, uh, trying to provide female equality, enforce paternity payments. You do all of that, abortion rates drop. There are certain states in the US where some of that's been provided, abortion declines. But here's what's so bitter about all this, that people on the Christian right, most of what I've just mentioned, they're opposed to. They think sex ed in schools is, a, is terrible, take your kid out of school. They think that socialized medicine is, is communism and, and the state run wild and socialized daycare is an attack on the family. And you, how dare you try and eradicate poverty by progressive tax. So they're opposed to all of those things. So they're not really, they're not pro-life. That, that's a misnomer. They're not pro-life. They want to control women and stop abortion and particularly poorer women because think of Texas and what they're trying to do at the moment. Mm have money. If, if you're a woman with money, you'll go to another state. If so you're a woman, you won't be able to. Okay, but so here we are in a situation where people take it and 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 uh, use it for their own purposes. Uh, someone could argue that you're taking it and using it for your own purposes, that, that you have now a certain worldview and you're doing a certain thing about it. But one of the things that I think I still struggle with is if we say that m- scriptures are written by men, uh, in piecemeal almost at different times, a hundred years later, 300 years later, a thousand years later, uh, then how do we turn to those scriptures and say, they, Christ, you know, Jesus said this, and this person did that, and this story is this metaphor for this, or it's not a metaphor, it should be taken literally. Uh, and yet it's all done in a, a structure of patriarchy, uh, of men's stories. So in that kind of a salad that we were working with, how do we then go to certainty about uh, an argument to be made? Because you do, basically you're making arguments here um, and know with any certainty that we're really talking about what was said and what was done. Well, I, I never claimed certainty because I wouldn't do that. I mean, I make a point of saying that in the book um, and I think it's dangerous when anyone does. We don't know who wrote uh, quite a bit of the Bible. I mean, it's a, it's a fair assumption it probably was men, but we really don't know. And it's not all men's stories either. I mean, there are women's stories too. Um, but I'm not making a case so much for abortion rights. I'm making a case that we shouldn't use scripture to oppose abortion. That's what I'm trying to do. I can write a secular book just saying, this is my opinion, but who cares? What I'm trying to do is use, if you like, what has been abused by people to deny women's rights and the rights of LGBTQ2 people and so on. I'm trying to say, look, this doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And when it comes to equal marriage, for example, there's a a whole chapter on that. 
where's the evidence from a Christian point of view? Where's the basis for an argument to oppose equal marriage? Because virtually the only people, I mean, it's some others, but the vast majority of people who are still opposed to equal marriage and, and full gay equality are in churches. I mean, other countries with different religions, but in the, in the, in the Western world. And there's still terrible homophobia in parts of Africa and the Caribbean and also in, in, in the U.S. And well, Orthodox and Judaism does the same thing. Yeah. I mean, orthodoxy tends itself towards my, this kind of thing. Not my community, and I can't really say. Um, but I'm trying to disarm. I'm, try, I'm trying to say, look, that there, there is nothing here. There, there are a handful of references to, to homosexuality. It's anachronistic. It's a 19th century word, obviously. Um, but they're, they're meaningless. In the Hebrew scriptures, we're talking about procreation. We're talking about a tribe of people wanting to make sure that the numbers remain. And, and this has nothing to do with that at all. Sodom is nothing to do with it. The sin of Sodom in, in the Old Testament, the sin of Sodom is not about sexuality. It's lack of hospitality. When St. Paul writes about it, and St. Paul is brilliant, and this is important stuff because Paul's letters are the earliest part of the New Testament. Um, and Paul has so much to say about so very much. I don't think he has much to say about equal marriage. When he does, a handful of times, two or three times mention same-sex relationships. They're not relationships. They're, they're yeah. I mean, in Romans, one of the most important uh, references, Romans 1, what he's really talking about, it's pagan initiation ceremonies where straight men would use teenage boys for sex as part of initiation into a cult. And if you actually look at the way the Romans has written, that there's a structure, a numerical structure, which is trying to mirror what was done in, in, in pagan. You need, it's important to understand this before you say to, to a wonderful human being who happens to be born gay, you're damned unless you change. That's one hell of a thing to say. And you don't even understand the text you're quoting. So look, understanding and education and, and we're all learning as we go. And there's, there are parts of the gospels I still don't understand. And I, I, I'm certainly not an expert, but you make an effort to realize what is really being said and what, it, what what's the attempt here. And Jesus throughout the gospels struggles with this because I mean, he, you can imagine him, I mean, what, what his face must have registered. Do you still not get it? I mean, he's, he's on the way to Jerusalem. He's, I mean, he's about to enter. And you, ha you have two of his closest followers who say, can we beat your right and your left? Come on. And, and he says, do you really want to share my cup? Do you really want to experience the same baptism as me? Really? Because he knows what's going to happen. Mm. And they don't. They, they know he's going to be glorified, but they still have an idea that could be riding into Jerusalem, liberating people on a, on a white horse. But he's saying to them, you have no idea what you're asking. And so constantly, they don't understand him. So it's no surprise that 2,000 years later, not everyone understands him. But I would urge, just read those four, but just read one of the Gospels. And at the end of that, is your conclusion, wow, here's a guy who would have voted for the People's Party of Canada, <laughs> would have supported Donald Trump. Or, or is it a really frightening text that makes you... But if you are invested in the power structures of this world, if you are invested in wealth and power and conservatism, the Gospels will be violence to you. They'll be terrifying. And they should be. So it, 
I, I was was doing a documentary on religion and politics in the United States, and I was with uh, a guy they called the Holy Roller, George Roller, who was a lobbyist, Christian evangelical lobbyist in Washington, <laughs> and I, at his house for dinner. And um, he just kept telling me how he was he really, he loved me, and he, he wanted to save me. Uh, and I, I tried to tell him, I, I was like, you do understand I come from a faith of my own. And there is something insulting here about you telling me that I, I need to be you or else it, it's not going to work out well for me. And he just kept doubling down. There's this thing in Christianity about evangel the evangelical aspect of it that I sometimes, uh, you know, in Judaism, we don't, as you know, we don't have that. We, you're not. You don't have it, it now. No, yeah. If people come to you now, you you tell them to go away, uh, you know, three times before you want to have a conversation. Um, but does that kind of a piece of the Christian faith lend itself to um, a superiority and an insensitivity? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it does. And Judaism. I mean, it was proselytizing for a couple of early Judaism. Yeah. Obviously it was. And um, I mean, it's a difficult part of the of the Old Testament, but a bit of ethnic cleansing too. And, and then later on, in early medieval period, there was some proselytizing. But generally, it hasn't been uh, Christianity and Islam have been. They're very different, and it's resulted in some absolutely terrible parts of history. Not always, you know. Uh, leading by example and witness, there have been individual Christians who've just gone and worked with people in the worst conditions um, to show this is what they think being a Christian is like. But overwhelmingly, it's been the spread of empire, colonization, um, aggression, forced conversion, and it's even happened within Christianity, Protestant to Catholic, Orthodox to Catholic, and so on. And, and, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of blood on, on hand. It's fairly recent for the Christian church. Well, there's a wonderful story uh, from the First World War, and um, the the number of, of men from India, and of course, in the First World War, there, was, there was no Pakistan or Bangladesh or India. And just a, enormous, enormous. I think in the Second World War, the Indian Army may have been the largest volunteer army in history, actually. Um, but in the First World War, enormous numbers of, of, of men from India fighting for the empire. And um, wounded Indian soldiers could brought back to Britain uh, in hospital to be cared for of all religions, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, and some Christian. And uh, there were some evangelicals within the Church of England who wanted to go in to be very kind and very caring, but to talk to these men, mainly Hindu and Muslim, about Jesus. And the general in command became very angry. And effectively said, get the hell out of here. And said, so these men have given, some of them have given everything. These men here have given limbs, have given, are, are terribly wounded. And they've given it as Hindus and as Muslims for us. And you dare to come in and say they have to change. And that was in about 1916. Yeah. And there, but it is relatively modern, the idea that we, that is wrong to do this. I, you know, I have people come to me and, and they're interested in Christianity. Of course, wonderful. Um, never turn anybody away. I would just hope that I could, by witness, 
bring some people to be interested in Christianity, but you're quite right. I mean, no kidding, you should never try and deny it. Uh, church history, had, there's glory and there's wonder and there's beauty, but there's also blood and persecution. And, but that's where, for some, Jesus becomes the, the, a different thing. You know, American evangelical, um, they're fighting to, be, to keep a white, Christ, white Christian way of life going. That well, has, hold on. That, I, think, I don't think we should generalize uh, in that way. Um, the evangelical church is quite large. Yes. A lot of them are black. Uh, now, for white evangelicals voted 89% for Donald Trump. Black evangelicals, and that's an enormous... And if, if, you, if you look at the black liberation movement and black political struggles, um, often there's a Christian foundation to it. Even within the white evangelical church, there are gradations, there are levels. There, there is a, a far more educated and sophisticated evangelical church that is not racist, that, that fights racism. Then there is a more severe, more basic... Uh, form of evangelicalism uh, and particularly fundamentalism, which is a, a, another branch of that, I suppose. It depends where you go. I think if you look at more Northern evangelicals um, and, and various denominations, you, you'll have a different response to that. But certainly, look, at churches, Protestant churches divided in the United States over the Civil War. Right. The, the abolitionist movement was, was heavily Christian. And it was actually quite evangelical. In Britain, William Wilberforce, Thomas Clarkson, people like this, they, they, were, they, be, they really became Methodists. They were in the Church of England, but they were evangelicals in the Church of England. Uh, the Labour Party in Britain, it was always said it owed more to Methodism than to Marxism. So as much as I may, might reject evangelical theology, I know some wonderful evangelical people in the Church of England, in the Anglican Church, and also independent evangelicals. But there is within it this raw fundamentalist, severe, as you say, American nationalist, and sometimes racist uh, element. It's interesting when it comes to anti-Semitism because um, Jews have become fashionable because of Christian Zionism. Yes. It's not that they're particularly philo-Semitic. That's not generally a major issue with them one way or the other. I, mean, I don't they barely know a Jewish person. But this distorted idea of, of, of Israel all Jews have to return to Israel. Then there's an end times battle, Megiddo, Armageddon. Some of them become Christian, they're saved, but most of them die. Well, yeah, is there anyone else I could talk to? But that, that I mean, that's the <laughs> Christian Zionist idea, and which is, you know, I, I know quite a few people in, in the Palestinian world who are Christian. And uh, I spent a lot of time in Israel and particularly hung out with Palestinian Christians some Israeli Arabs, uh, some in the territories, and um, it's very hard and very difficult because on the one hand, they have an Old Testament that often points to uh, Jewish occupation of the land that they've always lived in, and also because Christian Zionism simply couldn't care less about Palestinian Christians. Yeah. They probably don't even know they exist. So it's very hard for them to hold on to their faith. I mean, they, they do, many of them, uh, but that's another yeah, issue. <laughs> So is Christ a socialist? I, I would never give that as a, a definite, but I would ask you to look at how, he, how Jesus lived. And he lived in a very uh, communalistic manner. He didn't have private property. Um, he spent his time with people who were on the margins, not always, but generally of society. I mean, Peter may have, been, have owned a few fishing boats. He could have been relatively well off, but generally on the margins of society. 
um, he, would, he rejected the conventional power structures. He condemned them and it was condemned by them. Uh, he, they seemed to have a, um, uh, an idea of redistribution as a community. So you must construe from that what you will. And you will construe what from that? Well, I don't think he sounds like uh, uh, an investment banker to me. I mean, I, there's something very different going on there. It's, it's, if you look at the origin, you look at the, the Essene community that John the Baptist may well have been a part of, communal living. If you look at some of the, the, the Jewish ideas that were around at the time, I mean, there are various different groups, of course, um, communal living, um, a group, fraternity, uh, and also it seemed something approaching gender equality too. I think, remember the Gospels, the first people to see Jesus resurrected are women when they're not believed by the stupid men. Hmm. And when he talks about power structures and, you know, if you haven't sinned, you throw a stone, otherwise get lost. Uh, anyway, I, I, I'm not going to give labels because these labels are, are anachronistic. And whenever you talk about this, people say, well, no, he believed, he didn't believe in any state influence. He believed, they say, you're being anachronistic. You're claiming he was a socialist. You shouldn't do that. He didn't believe in, in, um, in state intervention, which is one of the most anachronistic things you could say. Well, state intervention, they lived under, under occupation. I mean, that, that, it's irrelevant. It's about the, the, the human person, the individual. How should we act? How should we react? How, we sh how should we reform? How, how should we hold ourselves? And is it as an individual, it's all about me, or is it about the community as one in, in human equality created by a loving God? Why did you choose, um, you could have gone a lot of different ways with the book, but you, you, you choose to spend a fair amount of time on um, LGBTQ plus and abortion. Why those two things and not other things? That's a good question. Well, first of all, um, the publisher wanted 50,000 words, <laughs> which was music to my ears because I didn't, you know, I don't write long books. But so I had to be, to do things properly. And you've got to give a bit of length to both of those subjects. You know, that's, that's about a third of the book there. And also because, I, unfortunately, those are two issues that really define conservative Christianity. I mean, the other big chapter is on economic justice. And I'd say they, those are the three things, but on those two issues, I mean, abortion in particular. Uh, abortion is, um, it's a defining issue, but, but also when it comes to, to equal marriage and, and gay equality. When I, seven, eight years ago, began to change in my Christian view and left the Catholic church eventually, people didn't come to me and say, do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Do, do you believe in the physical resurrection? Do you believe in the virgin birth? They just said to me, do you believe in equal marriage? Well, they didn't say equal. Do you believe in gay marriage? Mm. And that was enough. If I said yes, you're gone, you're out. So yes, you can believe in the creed. You can believe that Jesus is the son of God and by a relationship with him, you have eternal life and he was born of blah, blah, blah. Okay, oh, that's all, that's all good. That's all good. But you believe in gay marriage? You're not a Christian. Why, so, where, why, why so much fear around homosexuality, as, as it were? Why, why so much red line about that uh, when other things are not as emphasized and, you know, business ethics, things like that. People right. don't seem to see, you know, climate destruction. But when it comes to sexuality 
and the control of the sexual life, there, the obsessiveness of it, you must have given us a fair amount of thought before you went. Yeah, I have. And um, because when I changed my views more than seven years ago now, I was inundated with hatred and attacks. And what I realized when you crystallize it, um, it's very, now I'm not claiming here that every homophobic Christian is actually a closeted gay. That's far too reductive and it's just not true. Although I think a number of them are, <laughs> but certainly not all. But it is personal, and, you, and you're right, it's fear. The correspondence I received barely mentioned lesbianism. It was male homosexuality, and to be, I don't want to be too explicit, but it was actually about one particular sexual act, right. which is not even that common within the gay community, and, it's, and certainly occurs within the straight community. But it was an obsession with this, and it was... It was deeply Freudian and psychological and personal and emotional. And I think it was fear-based and, and it was irrational. And when it comes to the issues of, of, of personal morality and, and family, Jesus is, is, is quite explicit about divorce. I mean, it's a, it's a, I mentioned this in the book, I think. Now, all churches have come to terms with divorce. Catholic church calls it annulment, but believe me, it's yeah. divorce. And evangelical churches are often led by people who've been divorced. So they, they've found a way around that. But Jesus condemns divorce more than once. I think it's, it's quite a, a feministic approach because women who were divorced 2,000 years ago in the Near East often had very few rights or privileges and could end up in bad situations. I think it's quite liberating for women. But he does criticise divorce. They don't talk about that one. When, I mean, Donald Trump, how many times has he, he been married? I have no idea. Irrelevant. Irrelevant to them. But if Trump said he was gay... Believe me, he'd be gone. They, they, I mean, there'd been a lot of confusion, but they, they're just... You know. So yes, they're, they're inconsistent, they're hypocritical, but here's the point where it's so pertinent to the book. They're heretical. They're heretical. They're non-biblical. They're anti-biblical. They're actually speaking out and working against the teachings of Scripture. Your argument from my ability to understand was that this was about oppression, not about homosexuality. This was about straight men uh, using uh, people for their sexual pleasures, male or female, uh, and part of that same idea of, of oppression. You don't talk about bisexuality. Is there some piece of that that should be addressed in oh, terms that's... of this? Because now we're talking about gender fluidity, yeah. trans, you know, all those different pieces. Certainly not enough room, and I wouldn't dream of addressing the trans issue because I, I don't think I, I have the right to do so. Uh, I know I wish some other people would shut up about it as well when they have no knowledge of it, no understanding. I would simply ask people always to try and empathise, always try and, and spend time with people in those communities and see if you have the same view at the end of it. But no, I, I mean, there wasn't room to do that in, in a, a book of this length. And I, I think it would have been a digression. I think that, I mean, the um, too complex and, and too sociological, so I didn't, and, and bisexuality, again, it, it, those who oppose equal marriage and, and the gay, I'm using the word gay just to be brief, the gay community, they don't distinguish. Um, so I don't think it would have helped me in any way to do so. Remember, it, it's not a, a, a secular book talking about the, the logic of sexual right. It, it's, it's what does scripture say here and what should we conclude from it? 
Um, I mean, you mentioned climate change. I mean, I do, I do refer to it, but don't spend too much time on it. But it's a very good example that you mentioned. Um, if you believe in creation, so God gives us a world and we are destroying it. And there are many conservative Christians who are vehemently opposed to any measures that might limit or prevent or reverse climate change. Figure that one out. Well, uh, in some ways, I think it's this, um, the hubris of, of, of our technological deities at this point in that we are, we are God. You yes. know, there, there are literally teams working on immortality at this moment. So uh, we are yeah, God. That's a very good point you made. Actually, I might steal that. That's very good. Because <laughs> isn't it deeply ironic that actually the way some conservative Christians behave is that they are God? And I think what I may have mentioned in the book is this idea that, you know, you pray to be, I pray, make me more like you, make me more like you. But what they're really saying is, make you more like me, <laughs> more like me. I want God to be someone who is waving an American flag. And uh, yeah, no, doesn't happen. What a strange thing we do, you know, in the attempt to bring meaning to life and why are we here and what is the purpose and all of this. Yeah. We can't seem to stop ourselves from sort of devolving into things that are motivated more by our fear of life, our yeah. fear of death and our reaction to, to the other, you know, when our Jewish scripture love the stranger, Christians love the stranger. Uh, and yet this seems to be, uh, it, it doesn't seem to match up with the tribal instinct of the tribe. I need to, you know, congregate with like-minded people, know that they're, they have my back and that when I look out of the cave, we're going to be okay because there's more than me. Uh, but on the other side of it, you, you, the cooperative part of life, the, the part where we need each other, you know, where, um, you know, you as, as, a, as a priest now find yourself in that intersectional place between a person's life and a person's death um, th there's so much there that has uh, love and beauty in it. But I think if you live in a death phobic culture that you can't help but pervert things to, to make it seem as if you're never going to die mm. in one way or another. Uh, and that you need arguments for people being like you, even though you can argue as you have, that there's a latency to the fear of homosexuality, for instance, you know. Um, what do you want people to take from the rebel Christ? What, 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 I know that it's not a 500 page book, but what do you want people to take from this that will help them with their lives? Well, I certainly want people to read it who have no obvious interest in Christianity. And it's not a book written for exclusively for Christians. I'd like them to read it with an open mind and if at the end of it, in the perfect world, they would say, oh, I didn't realize that. And my golly, is that what Christianity really is about? I'd like them to react how a lot of people who read my columns in the Star and the Globe, when generally I'm writing about faith, I get a lot of emails and they say, a lot of them say, I didn't know that's what Christianity was. Not only that, I might even go to church if that was 
that that's what I want. Um, I, I want to be not an antidote, but just a counterweight to a lot of what they read and see, which is is blood curdling, really. That's. Um, I think most people are open-minded. They, they will read it and, and, and just give it some time. And I'm not trying to make anyone a believer. If they are, that's great. But really just to give them, and also arm them in terms of the public square, because this isn't going away. And the Christian right is becoming more influential. And although it's in the US, I mean, it could, it could well be that Donald Trump is reelected. Mm. And if he is, um, the Christian right will be not responsible for that, but a significant part of that. They think about a third of the Republican Party membership is evangelical Christian. But it's not just the US, it's Eastern Europe, it's Africa, it's the Caribbean. And as for Canada, and I know we can be quite smug about this, and I don't think, I mean, the, the People's Party has a strong uh, Christian right element, but that party is never going to form a government. But the Conservative Party of Canada, if Erin O'Toole, who I think is a fairly moderate figure, if Erin O'Toole and his people are moved out, and if they keep losing elections, they will be, you have a look at who will stand for leadership. And I would pretty much guarantee that someone, a strong evangelical Christian, will stand for leadership. And that doesn't mean Canada's going to change overnight. Our culture is not that of the US. It's far more North European in its feel. But a Conservative Party that was led by evangelical conservatives. Remember, the majority of the conservative caucus voted against banning conversion therapy. Now, conver conversion therapy is deeply homophobic. It, it, um, it's junk science and it's condemned as torture by many uh, highly regarded organizations internationally. It should be banned. Many countries and states ban it. O'Toole and, and most of cabinet voted to ban it. The majority of the conservative party caucus voted against banning it. They claimed it was for freedom of religion. It wasn't. It was because of they either didn't think it should be banned or they were beholden to voters who didn't want it banned. So I, I really would keep my eyes open on how the Conservative Party could change. It, it's tried a more progressive view and approach and it's failed. If it moves to the right, look at the influence of the Christian right because people, these people are very energized, they're very energetic. So I, I want Canadians to be armed. Well, that's not really what Christianity says. And also as a Christian, I want them to, to see the genuine, mere, authentic faith that, that has completely changed my life and the lives of many others. It's beautiful. It's not ugly. Hmm. That's a lot. Uh, and there's a lot of, um, I don't know, I spend a lot of my time uh, or some of my time in the political world. And, um, you know, we live in a culture where we are in political life uh, consumers, you know, that's why the word taxpayer is so popular mm -hmm. because then you're a customer and the customer is so-called always right. Um, so people p uh, pander or, or try to create things that'll make you say, okay, you've given me the right amount of stuff, uh, you know, highly materialistic view of, of, of the process. And uh, I find religion and, uh, you know, church, synagogue, mosque, temples being, you know, I, I, I did two things this year around the idea of empty pews, one, one with Presbyterians and one with Jews uh, about, you know, people aren't coming. People are, 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 are saying, no, this, this isn't, for, this doesn't speak to me. 
congregational life doesn't speak to me and I don't need these alliances I can find um, in social media echo chambers of my own that I enjoy. Do you worry at all that, um, that the religious life is not going to be able to help us through uh, the environmental crisis, the social and sexual crisis uh, that, that we're in now? Do you, do you worry that the pulpit will, will be speaking to a, to a more and more empty church? Um, I certainly don't think the climate crisis is going to be solved um, only by Christians, and Christians play a part in it. Um, you might be surprised how environmentally conscious and active a lot of churches are in mainstream Protestantism, Anglican, United, Presbyterian, Lutheran, but it's going to require much, much more than that. Uh, but it will require influence on, on politicians, and Christians play a, a part in that. Um, when it comes to issues such as uh, gay marriage um, and gay rights, I think churches have come a long way. There's a long way to go. But no, I, I mean, I'm not looking to places of faith to, to, to change the world as such. I'm looking to places of faith to change the people who are there. Um, I want Christians to, um, if, if, every, if every practicing Christian embraced what I think is a genuine teaching of Jesus, the world would be a very different place. I mean, think of the Beatitudes, think of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who called themselves a Christian lived like that. I mean, throughout, you know, Gandhi said something like, you know, I, I love your Christ, I'm not so keen on your Christian. <laughs> but um, the teaching is revolutionary. Those who practice it, including me, unfortunately, are not, we don't always live up to it. But the, the, you need the aspirational goal. It's not, you know, not a question of perfection. Not trying to change the world. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to change me, <laughs> and if I can change people, but because they've read the book, then wonderful. But uh, I'll I'll settle. For, I mean, I'm 62. I haven't got that many years left. I, I'll I'll leave changing the world to the kids. Well, you know, it's interesting in our tradition. There's tikkun olam, the repair of the world, but there's also mm. um, the argument made, uh, I think, convincingly that the uh, at the same time or before is tikkun uh, hanefesh, the repair of the soul. Uh, because if you come to the attempt at social and social justice and change and all these things with a, a shall we say, not a very clean container filled with your own angers and resentments and pieces, then, you know, it's ineffective. But if mm -hmm. your spiritual work, as you say, is about the person and the change of that person, they can bring that to uh, the challenges ahead of them uh, in a much more effective way because they haven't just said, I have a cause, but you know what? I'm not that really, I don't have my stuff together, but I have a cause, <laughs> you know, because then we get on horses and trample each other. So uh, it's interesting. The Rebel Christ, Michael Corrin, uh, the author, book number 17. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Um, thank you for being with me on Not That Kind of Rabbi. I really appreciate it. Real pleasure. Always is. Thank you so much. Always. Absolutely. Uh, the Reverend Michael Corrin. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Uh, I have a book out, uh, not number uh, 17, number one, called I Thought He Was Dead. Uh, if you're interested in it, please uh, um, order it on Indigo or go to your bookstore. Uh, it's a spiritual memoir. Uh, and uh, in it, we do talk about some of these things as well. But it's... Uh, it's an interesting ride, and I hope you, uh, you join me on it. You take care of yourselves and take care of each other.
拜拜。